0: I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us.
1: And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Live podcast. Today we will discuss Act 3, the climactic midpoint of Macbeth. Um, in episode one, we introduced very briefly Shakespeare in a specific historical context of this play, a play we assume was first performed uh, for King James I of Great Britain. It is Shakespeare's only play set in Scotland, and it takes inspiration from a few real characters from Scotland's early history. We talked about a few contemporary issues of Shakespeare's day that influenced the play, one of which was King James' interest in witches, as evidenced by the book he wrote titled Demonologies, um, and his persecution of witches in Scotland, as well as the gunpowder plot, which was the assassination attempt on his life by the Catholic extremists, most notably Guy Fawkes, which people may have heard of. Uh, We also discussed the very beginning of Act One. And those famous witches with their very famous lines like, fair is foul and foul is fair. Uh, In episode two, we introduced Lady Macbeth and all the controversy that has surrounded her over the years from her defenders, of whom Christy is one, and of her many, many aggressors. And, you know, I myself, I will uh, equivocate on the issue.
0: (laughs) Well to equivocate, a word that means to use ambiguous language or conceal the truth, which of course is Macbeth's problem. How can he or they conceal this devilish act of killing the king who is asleep in their bed in their home? You know, Macbeth introduces the word equivocate in act two as kind of an inside joke because he was referencing the gunpowder plot, which we talked about. But of course, the most notable equivocator is not the porter who first used the word or even Macbeth or even the weird sisters, but Shakespeare himself, not just with his words, but with his staging. It's what Shakespeare does at every point in this play, because in this play, we don't even know for sure if some of the characters are real or if they're just figments of our imagination Or are they visitors from another dimension? This uncertainty is the heart of Act 3. But before we get to the heart of Act 3, let's remember that in Act 2, Scene 4, we ended with Macbeth heading off to Schoon or Scone, depending (laughs) if you're an American or a British person trying to say that name. But he's not the only one going there he has to meet the other thanes because he is going to be invested. And what does that mean? It means he will be crowned. Malcolm and Del- Donald Bain; those are Duncan's sons who you think would be the next kings. Well, they they fled for their lives. They had to leave because they thought they were going to be targeted next. And because they left, Of course, it was easy to blame them for the murder of their father, which is what happened. And so without them there, the sovereignty in the words of the text has fallen to Macbeth. Gary, Scone is an important place in Scottish history because it is only in Scone that a Scottish king can be crowned. Tell us about that. Why is Scone so important? In this country?
1: Well, it's a place above the River Tay across from the city of Perth. And uh, of course, where it sits is not why it's important. It's famous because of the Stone of Destiny and Moot Hill.
0: I like those terms yes. Stone of Destiny, Moot Hill.
1: You know, in 843 AD, uh, Kenneth MacAlpin, who was a King of Scotland, brought with him a king making seat made out of rock what we call the Stone of Destiny, and he set it on Moot Hill. Um, It's a stone, it's old, it's sacred. Uh, In fact, for hundreds of years, many believed it was the stone that Jacob from the Bible rested on when he received his, uh, his vision from God. Modern geologists have since challenged that view, um, saying the stone, is its composition is more local than uh, Middle Eastern. But this myth really highlights how important the stone and how important schoon has become over the years in establishing um, the legitimacy of kings to rule. Between the 9th century and the 17th century, 42 Scottish kings have been crowned on Moot Hill at Schoon, including Macbeth, Robert the Bruce, and Charles. Now, I would like to add one other thing about Moot Hill. <laughs> Moot Hill is interesting because the vassals who would come and pay uh, homage to the new kings had to bring dirt from their area, and they would pile it on the hill, and it became Moot Hill upon where they uh, put the, the Stone of Destiny.
0: Well, I just want to brag for a minute because, you know, we when we visited Schoon, we not only stood on Moot Hill, that very spot where Macbeth was crowned, but you took my picture on the replica stone that where the real destiny of the Stone of Destiny used to be. So I like to say in a fictional sense, I think of myself as having been invested as Queen of Scotland. <laughs>
1: And not a single soul recognized your regency or your (laughs) authority. Well, not in my
0: fictional world.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, uh, now all I have to do is round up some things and challenge King Charles and the rest of the British Empire. Got that in you?
0: Well, yeah. Finding things. That is a challenge. But... In all seriousness, you know, British and Scottish history, it's so long. I mean, it's so much longer than American history. It seems magical in some ways. It's hard to imagine, you know, how long these traditions are and things like the Stone of Destiny. They seem, you know, fictional to people like me. But to believe that there's a stone that dates to the 800s and it's a political shrine. And I know it's not at Schoon anymore, but... It's still around. Gary, tell us a little bit about the real Stone of Destiny.
1: Well, that is in itself its own interesting story. I mean, it's digression, but we'll take a minute to do that. Plus, it's kind of funny. Um, I mentioned that the Stone of Destiny being used as a place to invest kings dates back to 800s. and If we can possibly imagine that long ago, but in 1296, Edward I of England seized the Stone of Destiny. Uh, Edward I is not the same Edward in our play. I mean, I know it's confusing. Don't try to keep a scorecard on that. Uh, the Edward and Macbeth is from the middle well, 1000s. Anyway, Edward took it to demonstrate England's dominance over Scotland. And if you don't know English and Scottish politics today, it's not nice. But <laughs> they, have, they have troubles. Anyway, he took it and he carried it back to Westminster Abbey, which, for those who may not know, is a church in the heart of London, and they placed it in a chair that was especially made for. it. The stone stayed in London at Westminster for 600 years. Which
0: is a long time. It
1: is. I mean, English monarchs used it during their coronation ceremonies, and I'm sure most people just assumed it would always stay there, and it did, until the year 1950, when a group of Scottish students from Glasgow broke into Westminster Abbey and they stole the Stone of Destiny. Isn't <laughs> is this a movie plot somewhere?
0: It, they but, did make a movie.
1: Okay. Well, anyway, they stole it over their Christmas break. Uh, they literally put the stone on one of their coats and they dragged it out of the church. They got away with it incredibly. However, uh, in the process, they broke the stone. And how do you break a rock? I don't know, but do <laughs> you did.
0: break the Stone of Destiny? Again, you know, history is funnier than fiction.
1: Uh, true. But I will say this in their defense uh, they were stealing back what had been stolen from them uh, in their mind its return was long overdue. And they hauled it back to where it stayed until they were caught and the stone was taken back to Westminster. And I will say they were not thrown into prison or anything like that. I mean, it's a fun story and they've even made it into a movie. And the stone was a part of Queen Elizabeth's coronation in 1953. And it stayed at Westminster another 40 years until Prime Minister John Major agreed to return the stone to Scotland for good. And today, it lives behind lock and key at Edinburgh Castle, alongside the, the Scottish Crown Jewels, which we have seen, along with the uh, millions of visitors that get to see it every year. And it only leaves the castle for coronations, and uh, it was used in King Charles II. They used for his coronation in May of 2023.
0: Well, all that to say, when King James the First, you know, the one in Shakespeare's day, was crowned, he was crowned on that same stone of destiny.
1: And he was the first Scotsman in 300 years to be crowned on it. And when he was crowned king both of Scotland and also Britain as a whole, uh, many Scotsmen saw this as really kind of a fulfillment of destiny.
0: So that's just a little context of why, you know, they, that town is important and why they talk about it in the play. But when we jump back to the play, we see that Macduff in scene two, well, actually scene four of act two, uh, Macbeth has gone to Scone. He's going to be invested and Macduff isn't going, he's not going to go. Instead of going to watch him become king, he goes to Fife. And not going to that coronation couldn't possibly well received. I mean, it's obviously <laughs> a sign of disapproval.
1: Hmm, you know, I was just going to say that, you know, at a coronation, uh, there would be an expectation to take a loyalty oath to Macbeth, and not attending is a confession that you are unwilling to do that.
0: And he is. I mean, Macduff isn't the only thing to suspect Macbeth uh, as Duncan's murderer, but he is one. And Obviously, Banquo is another one. Banquo knows better than anyone else that Macbeth not only had the means to kill Duncan, but he had special motivation to do it.
1: But, of course, um, you know, Macbeth knows that Banquo knows. So it gets confusing. (laughs) I know that you know that you know that I know that we all know that we know.
0: Well, and this haunts Macbeth. I mean, we see it. It literally haunts him.
1: You know, let me interject one more bit of historical trivia uh, before we take off into this world Shakespeare has created. Um, According to Holinshed, the the history book where Shakespeare uh, Shakespeare found Macbeth's story, Banquo was Macbeth's accomplice in Duncan's murder. So
0: in the real life, he was in on it.
1: Right. In real life, Duncan was a real king, but he wasn't a good king at all. He was a terrible leader for many reasons, and his cousin Macbeth defeated and killed him in battle with Banquo's help. In real life, the real Macbeth ruled for 17 years before he was defeated and killed by another ambitious thane. So this is just the way things were in Scotland during this period. And the reason I bring this up is that Shakespeare goes to a lot of trouble to redeem Banquo. And uh, Banquo in this story does not fight Duncan. He's loyal to the end. And there's a practical reason Shakespeare did that. Uh, King James really believed that Banquo was in his family tree. And Shakespeare was not about to have one of King James' ancestors <laughs> commit regicide. Uh, it's no. just another interesting historical uh, tidbit and, you know, Fine. side road.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, back to the play in act. Three scene one, Macbeth and Banquo talk for the last time. Banquo tells Macbeth that he and Fleance are going out for a ride, and no sooner does Banquo leave than Macbeth hires murderers to take him out. And we get to see why Banquo uh, has to go. I mean, Macbeth soliloquy talks about that after he leaves. Macbeth can't enjoy being king. He says as much. He says this, to be thus is nothing. I mean, that's pretty strong. He became king and now he considers it nothing. And it's nothing because he's afraid of Banquo. And he tells us why he's afraid of Banquo. Banquo is daring. He has wisdom that guides his valor. In other words, Banquo is a good person and he's brave enough to act on his beliefs. Macbeth remembers that Banquo spoke out against the witches. Not only is Banquo himself a threat, but Macbeth knows that the witches told them both that Banquo's son would be king, and this irritates Macbeth most of all. You know, when he talks about it, it kind of makes me laugh if you think about it. Let's read, you know, Macbeth's complaints.
1: No son of mine seceding, if it be so, for Banquo's issue have I filed my mind. For them, the gracious Duncan, have I murdered "...put rankers in the vessel of my peace only for them, and mine eternal jewel given to the common enemy of man, to make them kings, the seed of banquo kings, rather than so come fate into the list, and champion me to the utterance." Christy, can you translate for that for me?
0: (laughs) Yes, it's funny. I mean, Banquo gets, I mean, Banquo, Macbeth gets to thinking about it. And he realizes, oh, my gosh, I've made a bad deal. This is what he says. My son isn't going to be king. Banquo's son's going to be king. Then he said, I'm the one who killed Duncan. I'm the one who will never have peace again. I have to go to hell for killing a king. And Banquo's kids, he's the one that gets the reward? Screw that. I'm going to get murderers. (laughs) You know, and Shakespeare spends a relatively long time developing this scene with the murderers. I mean, this is a play that's very fast-paced. All of the scenes, they just go so fast. Most of them are so short. But we labor here on this conversation, and it kind of seems a bit of a digression. Macbeth doesn't just pay the murderers and send them on their way. You'd think he would. I mean, what do you have to talk about? He's hiring murderers in the next act. But he does. And in this act, they talk. Macbeth gives the reasons to kill Banquo, and he uses some of the same emotional strategies with the murderers that Lady Macbeth uses with him. He makes it about their manhood. He uses a phrase you may never hear anywhere else. I'm not sure I have, although I'm not going to say it's never used. But he uses this word, gospeled. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, You know that the word gospel is not a verb. That's a noun. And it's a noun that Christians use to represent the good news of Jesus. So it embodies kind of the ideals of Christianity. We see things like the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Mark, the gospel of Luke. But Shakespeare has turned that word gospel into a verb. And he asks these murderers, you're not so gospeled, are you? And of course they say, oh no, we're not gospeled, we're men, as if those things couldn't coexist in the same world. (laughs)
1: Well, you say that, but actually that's not an uncommon attitude, actually, even today. Um, Christianity has always been, uh, but especially in those cultures emerging from paganism, it was always considered a feminine kind of faith. And if you read the Gospels of Jesus, you read Jesus asking men to do things that would not be acceptable in warring cultures, like the one in Scotland, you know, Jesus has turned the other cheek. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Uh, Jesus himself died on a cross as a means of salvation. These are not manly things as defined by warring cultures. I mean, men fight. Winners don't die on crosses. That's for the defeated. Uh, Men certainly aren't mink, and they don't turn the other cheek. And uh, even Machiavelli, in his book, The Prince, talks about this. He says, a good leader must claim to be religious but he must not actually follow religious tenets, because if he does, he will lose his kingdom. So when Macbeth asked the murderers, you're not too gospel to do this, what he's asking is, you're not going to let your feminine morality get in the way of you doing what needs to be done, are you? You're not going to be defeated by attitudes of weakness, are you?
0: I mean, it's an interesting way to put that. And and their response is also very interesting, because it indicates that they seem to understand what he's asking uh, because they simply say, We're men, which, you know, in itself, that's interesting. But then they f- go further and they say what they consider, I don't know, these qualities of manhood. You know, they exp- explain really that life has been so bad to them that they're reckless. They're weary, this is what they say, of disasters. They've been tugged with fortune to the point that they will try anything for improvement. So, you know, kind of like life has beaten, you know, any kind of morality out of them.
1: Well, and apparently killing Banquo is an improvement.
0: <laughs> I mean, from their perspective, maybe it just doesn't even matter. And, and I think Shakespeare's trying to say that it doesn't matter. It doesn't really answer questions. It, it, I think what Shakespeare's doing is giving us a theory of why would a person kill some other person randomly? Uh, they just don't think it matters to them or to anyone. Their lives are already bad. Uh, perhaps they are even swimming in blood, to use the expression Macbeth will use a little bit later. Killing, not killing, it's the same. So if it helps Macbeth, if it gains them something, why not? I mean, maybe Macbeth convinces them Banquo is mad, bad. Maybe he doesn't, you know, he doesn't try very hard. He does give them some reasons, but it just comes across that they don't care. They're already miserable. And so Macbeth, at this point, really believes that he can fix things. He can make things right if he just commits one more murderer or really two more murders <laughs> because he's got to kill Banquo and he's got to kill Banquo's kid. But if he can do that, yeah, then he can make you know killing Duncan's death worth it. So we've got Duncan's death, Banquo's death, Fleance's death. He has to make all of them as if they didn't happen. And if he can do that, then it, things will be right in the world. And, and Macbeth actually confesses to the murderers that as a king, he legally could do what he wants. He could kill Banquo. But it's not good for him to do it because he has to make his friends think he. He didn't know he did it. He needs to <laughs> wail. That's what he says. Wail his fall. He needs to cry when he falls. And he tells the murderers he needs to, for them to make sure that both Banquo and Fleance are killed.
1: Well... That plan just totally fails any (laughs) say-out-loud test, you know? We're going to make things better by doing these more 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 heinous things. Uh, It it seems to me that Macbeth might understand this, and um, Macbeth does not enjoy being king for one minute during his play, and neither does his wife. Um, He regrets killing Duncan as soon as he does it. He can't sleep. He has no peace. But instead of a reversal of courses, um, he's going to push forward. You know, in his mind, the path to peace— is to kill Banquo. Um, you know this never works, and what we learn from uh, Act Three, Scene Two is that it doesn't work for Lady Macbeth either. Uh, she doesn't enjoy being queen, not even for a day. Knots had all spent were our desire. It got without content. 'Tis safer to be that which we destroy than by destruction dwell in doubtful joy. I mean, and it rhymes, and it may be confusing, uh, but it's a fascinating idea. Uh, not had, you know, we have nothing. We spent everything. We got what we wanted, but we don't have any contentment. Um, it would be better to be the person murdered than to live in what she calls this doubtful joy. She's looking at life that she doesn't want, and it cost her everything to get it.
0: Yeah, it's such an interesting idea. And and what we begin to see as we watch these two characters change is that Lady Macbeth spirals downward and so does her husband, but they spiral spiral really very differently. Lady Macbeth, in some sense, seems to recognize that they've deceived themselves, and maybe she's seeking to hold on to her humanity in some way. She recognizes a change in her husband. She tries to connect with him, but she's unable. She asks her husband why he keeps alone. He shut her out. I mean, this is a definite change in their relationship. In Act 1, Lady Macbeth was his dearest partner in greatness. He was more than happy to conspire with her about killing Duncan. But that intimacy is gone. The murder has affected both of them. He is not breathing a word to her about killing Banquo. Their relationship is breaking up. Instead of talking to her about his plans, he talks to her about his paranoia. We have scotched the snake, not killed it. She'll close and be herself while our poor malice remains in danger, her former tooth. I mean, he goes on about not being able to sleep, and he says this Oh, full of scorpions is my mind, dear wife. That is a very vivid way of expressing what's going on inside him. His mind is full of scorpions. I wouldn't be able to sleep either if if my mind were full of scorpions. But yet he thinks he knows how to find peace. And ironically, it's not about repenting. And by repenting, I mean changing courses, building a kingdom. I'm not sure we even see Macbeth feeling sad that Duncan is dead. I'm not sure he feels guilty that he murdered a king. I mean, some people think that, but I'm not sure that that's true. He kind of seems okay with that. His problem is moving forward from the murderer. He can't shake the consequences of his actions, and so he must kill again. But this time, if only Fleance and Banquo are dead, then he can have peace. Then he can have peace, sleep those blasted scorpions, he's sure of it, they'll go away.
1: (laughs) And yet this isn't something that he can share with his wife. I mean, which is what I think is one of the most important ideas in Act 3. Macbeth must destroy every relationship in his life, his friends, his wife, his faith, all of it. He's willing to give up uh, for this lust, which he admits gives him no peace and no satisfaction and not any freedom. And he ends scene two talking about hiding in the night, covering up the eye of the day with a bloody and invisible hand. And he prays to night's black agents. And he understands uh, the one truth about violating one's conscience: Things bad begun make strong themselves by ill. You know, in other words, once you commit one bad deed, you're then forced to commit another and another. And back to the idea that uh, his mind is full of scorpions.
0: You know, it's a great you know image of, of how we can see people behave. And yet... Things just don't work out like they're supposed to. And in this case, the murderers kill Banquo, but Fleance gets away. Oh, treachery, fly, good Fleance, fly, fly, fly. I've seen so many fun means with that. Fly, Fleance, fly <laughs> on it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and the murderers have to tell Macbeth that Fleance has flown at a very unfortunate moment. Um, scene four of Act Three could not be more intense. Uh, Shakespeare has put Macbeth under intense pressure. Uh, he has been invested as king, and this is his moment. He is at the palace, he's prepared a banquet. They will enter by rank uh, because they know their own degrees.
0: Yeah, it's a meal, and I think it's really important. Important that you know, Shakespeare constructs a meal. Meals are archetypes, and, and we've all learned this. When, if you study literature, anytime you see a meal, know that it's significant.
1: Yeah, and the the not just significant in literature, they're significant in life. I mean, they they indicate fellowship and of course we see this in the biblical narrative of the Lord's supper and Jesus unites his followers with a meal before he's crucified, but it's not just a literary or or biblical symbol, it's in everywhere in literature and it's everywhere in the real world. I mean, think about holidays and birthdays and weddings and all these are marked by a meal and A feast communicates so much, uh, so much so that it's important to note every time a writer writes a scene with a meal. I mean, it implies acceptance, it implies trust, um, you know, a, a preservation of tradition and friendship. All of that is at stake in this scene. If Macbeth and Lady Macbeth can pull off this meal, they believe they can make the murderers go away. And right at the beginning, the murderers come in with Banquo's blood on their face to tell Macbeth uh, he is dead, but Fleance is alive. And he says, there the grown serpent lies. The word that's fled hath nature that in time will venom breed no teeth for the present. You know, so much for finding peace and murder.
0: Well, and it gets worse. Because just two lines after the murderers leave, Macbeth sees Banquo's ghost. Maybe. Whatever that is. (laughs) Not just sitting around his table with his other guests, but there he is at the head of the table. And here's a small digression, because I want to bring up an important idea that we may not think about, you know, if you're reading this in a book. Macbeth is not a novel. Macbeth is not a short story. Macbeth is a play. And plays are different from books in a couple of ways, but they're collaborative visions. So when you watch Macbeth being performed, you're you're seeing what Shakespeare was thinking and what he had in mind when he wrote the play, but you're not just seeing that. You're seeing how an actor understood what Shakespeare was saying. And you're not just seeing that. You're seeing how the director interpreted what Shakespeare was saying, how he staged it. And there is no more vivid representation of this kind of collaboration than this scene, because what is it that we're seeing? Shakespeare equivocates. Is Banquo's ghost a real person? I mean, some directors have it as a real actor. Is it a shadow? Some directors make it as a light or a shadow. Is it a figment of Macbeth's imagination? I mean, nowadays, you could even stage it like that. Is this the witches sending a demon? I mean, different people have thought different things. And a director must decide how he wants to present it to his audience. How does he want to stage this? Does it have no- – some people just don't put anything on the stage. Have have Macbeth talk to nothing, to empty space. Uh, but a lot of them use actors, and they dress them up. Maybe they'll make them look like ghosts. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll have them physically sit in Macbeth's chair. Maybe it's a hologram. Maybe it's an otherworldly effect. What is it that we see?
1: Well, what do people do?
0: Well, every production is different, and how you know a director understands this changes how you might think about the play, how you might interpret what's going on in Macbeth's head. For exa- example, David Tennant, you know, he recently awed London audiences uh, in this December twenty twenty three performance because they did something unusual. They made every audience member wear headphones, and the sound came through the headphones. So. This made you feel like maybe you're in Macbeth's head. You know, I I read the reviews. Some people love that. They enjoyed the effects. Others thought it was distracting. Uh, And this particular performance, you know, the witches aren't visible at all. They're only in the headphones. Uh, And this particular performance, you know, Lady Macbeth and Macbeth are whispering, which you couldn't do if they were on stage because if they were whispering, you wouldn't be able to see them. So this... You know, and changes how you understand the relationship between Lady and Macbeth. She's not commanding if she's whispering, maybe she's enabling and and making Macbeth do what he really already wants to do. So when you see new productions of Shakespeare's plays, a lot of times they sell out. This one did. Uh, Because people don't know. There's not a right or wrong answer to what's going on 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 the stage. There's just another and a different way to think about it. So Shakespeare writes the play. Uh, All we know in this scene is that when Macbeth sees the ghost, first he blames his guest and he says, Which of you have done this? Then he talks to the ghost. Thou canst not say I did it. Never shake thy gory locks at me. In other words, don't you shake your bloody hair at me. But Macbeth, either way, is terrified of whatever he sees. Is it a hallucination? Is it a demon? Is it Banquo returning from the grave? It's horrifying, however it is.
1: (laughs) Well, everyone in the room, including Lady Macbeth, thinks he's having a fit. Um, She tries to blow it off and say he has fits all the time. And I'm not sure that's the best excuse (laughs) for an incoming king. But I guess it's better than saying, you know, he's... Permanently crazy.
0: Well, L- Lady Macbeth tells him he's imagining things, and maybe he is. I mean, she compares Banquo's image to the air-drawn dagger that led her husband to kill Duncan, and, and most people think that was in his head. She tries to shake him out of it. She challenges his manhood again, saying, you know, being afraid of a ghost is like being afraid of an old woman at a fireplace telling stories. Uh, she says it unmans him, which is an interesting choice of words, but none of this works. Macbeth is certain about what he saw, and he makes, he's afraid, unlike anything he's ever experienced, which when you think about it, this is a guy who kills other people in battle. I mean, he decapitates. He just killed a king with a bunch of different, with more than one knife. None of that affected him the way this does. I mean, This idea, when he thinks about it, that the dead aren't staying dead. He says he can handle a Russian bear. He can handle a rhinoceros. He says, I can handle an Iranian tiger, but I can't handle a ghost. A ghost makes him a little girl, to use his words, the baby of a girl. And when the ghost finally leaves for the last time, then Macbeth can turn and say, I am a man again.
1: (laughs) You know, of course, in this context, I have to wonder what Shakespeare means when he uses the word man. Um, Is he using it as a gendered term, as in man versus woman, or um, is he using it as a human term, meaning man is uh, mankind? I would argue uh, what we will see from this point on in the play is not a man. I mean, Macbeth made a choice to kill Duncan. Uh, in order to escape the consequences of that choice, he made a second choice to kill Banquo. But things have gone wrong in various ways. If Fleance gets away, and Banquo uh, won't stay dead. I mean, he's looked uh, like a crazy person to the leaders of Scotland. And, you know, nothing is ever totally in our control. And we see this play out in this character. This next choice that Macbeth makes is the definitive choice of the play. He chooses to surrender his manhood. You know, not to become a woman, but he surrenders his manhood to become a beast. It's an
0: interesting thing to think about and an interesting way to understand what's going on. What's motivating this choice? Now, Shakespeare equivocates. What is this ghost? What does this ghost unlock inside of Macbeth, if anything? When everyone leaves the feast, and, and you know, at this point, we're deep into the night, and Macbeth says some of the most disturbing words that he'll say in the whole play. He decides to move forward instead of moving backwards. He understands moving forward means moving forward into darkness, into evil. Instead of feasting and fellowshipping with men, going back on his choices, maybe changing courses. He will move forward, and he will feast and fellowship with the weird sisters.
1: More shall they speak, for now I am bent to know, by the worst means the worst, for mine own good. All causes shall give way. I am blood stepped in so far that I should wade no more. Returning were as tedious as go o'er, Strange things I have in head that will to hand, which must be acted ere they may be scanned.
0: I mean, he's not reverting to a mere human existence. He will commune with agents of darkness. He will move forward in blood. He says, I'm already so far into this river of blood that it would be just as difficult to go back as it is to go forward. We have a friend that says once you get integrity out of the way, everything <laughs> gets easy, and that's what he's doing. By um, scene four, act three, we, he ends with these lines: "Come, will to sleep, my strange and self abuse is the initiate initiate fear that wants hard use. We are yet but young indeed," you know, meaning. My hallucinations, they're just the beginning. We're young indeed. I'm just getting started. And off he goes back to find those weird sisters.
1: Hmm. You know, there are two more scenes to Act Three, but they don't seem to carry much of the emotional impact um, as this banqueting hall ghost scene does.
0: No, and in fact, uh, a lot of scholars will tell you that Acts Three, Scene Five, wasn't even written by Shakespeare, but. You know, later audiences wanted more witches, so later productions, including, by the way, musical productions, they just inserted more (laughs) witches. I mean, scene six is a recap of what's happened so far. We have this character, Lennox, who comes up from time to time. He's been minor, but he's just always around and, and, and doesn't appear in the beginning to have much of a role. The first time we see him, he has no lines. He's just accompanying Duncan. The second time we see him, he's one of the guys that discovers Duncan's body. He also expresses skepticism about Duncan, about who murdered Duncan. Um, in this scene, Shakespeare brings out the same character to express to us, the audience, that Scotland is now turning on Macbeth. Lennox openly distrusts Macbeth. He refers to him as a tyrant. He says Scotland is suffering under his tyranny. He also tells us that Macduff has gone to England for help, and that name will be important.
1: And, of course, uh, we all know that uh, salvation in this play will come from the court of England. (laughs) As it should. Yes. Uh, In this case, Edward the Confessor, I'll I'll bore you with a few details about the king next episode, um, although they really don't factor a whole lot into the plot of this play. But, Christy, before we close out today, what do you think about this? Why does Shakespeare equivocate as to who or what the ghost of Banquo actually is? I mean, what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well... Of course, I have lots of thoughts on that, but I really don't have answers. I mean, none that somebody couldn't argue with me about. I mean, it's what makes this play so interesting. I think about Macbeth, you know, sometimes a lot, mostly because, you know, we're talking about the play a lot. I'm reading it. But I think about it because we see a lot of times people that have no conscience. I mean, we can see them in the news or or people talk about them on TV, but we can also meet them in our own personal life, people that we know personally. I mean, there are people in this world that appear to have given up that which makes them human. Memphis just this year has experienced more murders than it has in the history of the city, and a lot of those murderers are repeat offenders, and these are people that commit acts that are atrocious without empathy or without compassion. And and this is kind of what Shakespeare's talking about. Shakespeare has written a play, and it's situated in darkness. It's covered in blood. And there's no explanation really as to why. We watch a man, a great man, really, he's a powerful man, a, a privileged man, he's on the path of success. And he surrenders it entirely, voluntarily. We watch him do it to evil. And the explanation of how he gets there, it's ambiguous. It's a shadow in the dark.
1: And if Act 3 is about the making of a tyrant, Act 4 will be about the doings of a tyrant, you know, and Macbeth has farther to go. And, you know, uh, we hope you all would join us for that discussion. And uh, we'd like to say thanks for listening. Um, again, don't forget, you can always find us at com On our website, we have listening guides for most of our uh, episodes, as well as teaching resources. and. Also, whether you're a teacher, a student, or a fellow lover of literature, please subscribe to our podcast via YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating. If you like what you hear, possibly a review. It's when you share about the podcast to your friends on social media or via text or in class. If that's the way we grow. Thank you for supporting us in our mission to make reading great literature accessible and enjoyable to as many people as possible.
0: Peace out.